Speaking of reliability, a podcast with good friends talking with you about reliability engineering topics. Welcome to Speaking of Reliability. This is Fred Shankleberg. And this is Kirk Gray. And we were just wrestling the mic from each other, <laughs> trying to get like, stop, stop. We got to hit record. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> we hit a subject that we find some differences in what we, how we view it a little bit. And I feel those are probably the most interesting for the listeners when there's some uh, different uh, perceptions of, uh, you know, what, what we can do and how how it should be done. All right. Well, we need to wind back a little bit. So what's, what started was, is you noticed in our listing of titles and stuff that's been published, a listing of failure mechanisms. Right. And I've talked to Phil about it. And I think I talked to, uh, Oh, who else did I talk to? Somebody else, Diana, maybe. And, but it started with a a question that came in saying, Mm -hmm. is there a repository or a listing of failure mechanisms? And they were specifically interested in, uh, plastic enclosures mm-hmm. for electronics and the electronics type stuff. Mm-hmm. And the short answer to them was no, not really. There's material science books, there's electronics right. books, there's, you know, textbooks, there's, but it's all not really, I think, what you're looking for the way they described it. So I started thinking about that. Okay. And so that's what brought up this discussion. But what, you had a reaction to just the, the idea of listing failure mechanisms. Well, I just because um, I believe that those that, that's kind of what occurs in a rely experienced reliability engineer's mind after they've been exposed to a lot of actual failure mechanisms and failures in the field and have done the proper failure analysis to see what the me- mechanical or the physical mechanism, the chemical mechanism that caused this chain of events to lead to a failure of the system. Okay, once right. you've once you've done that. And you have some an exposure, and you can get this from conferences too. When you go and see somebody talk rarely about a failure that they've had, that's <laughs> well, very yeah, rare. No, I, I so, found, yeah, I found that going to the conference and talking to them over a, a cup, a mug of beer, uh, you get more details about exactly. interesting failure exactly. mechanisms. Yeah, exactly. Not in, not at the you know public presentations. Not often, no. You're no, right. because you can't disclose a lot of stuff because you've got it approved by the legal team what you can present, and that's very limited. Yeah. So anyway, you but we we have common ones, you know, with cracking of the solders, uh, you know, uh, and things come about that weren't exist, you know, weren't real common, like tin whiskers that yeah. happened way back in the, I think in the fifties or something, and then it reoccurred when we switched to lead-free solders and it wasn't you know so they they you know it it comes and goes and as our technology changes and the packaging dimensions change uh from going from uh the flip chip to you know direct uh application of uh, integrated circuit the silicon onto the the you know printed circuit material or whatever it's just it's now very uh, the mechanisms have changed somewhat, and it and we look at all the supply chains for all these things. Just go into an iPhone, for instance. You've got the encapsulation materials. You've got the oh, flame uh, retardant within the encapsulants, right? And at any level of that supply chain to each one of those component suppliers, any any one, like the encapsulant, the guy that makes the epoxy, you know, ships it to the chip 
uh, integrator in, in, in encapsulation. They could have a problem, and they have, mm-hmm. <laughs> as we experience. Some of us know that they have a, a problem with the TCE, uh, the ter- thermal coefficient of expansion, matching the lead frame or whatever. They they have very proprietary formulas to make those as compatible as possible uh, with the actual uh, mechanical structure of the of the chip, the lead frames, and all that. And that, some of that might be disappearing as we you know, get denser and denser electronics, these things change. So so I guess a understanding of the basic mechanisms of physics and cracking. Well, I'm just thinking, like, you're, you're talking about cracking. There, you can get yeah. corrosion. Corrosion can lead to cracking or crazing is another... You, you it often, can. Right? But it also can just combination with that the, expansion the different and expansion and contraction and heating and cooling. Right, right. Or it could be motion that is, you know, you would load it and unload it and that creates work hardening in some materials right. and creates cracks. So the right. idea is that if you see a crack, yes, it could have a dozen different, you know, mechanisms that are at play. And then so right. The, so the idea of creating some, a list, it's not, just, it's not a list of every specific failure mechanism for every specific material, because as a handful of people, including yourself before we hit record, said, you'll never be done listing stuff. It's just a list. And right. getting photos of all of them and everything else would be virtually impossible. But the thought is, and the more I think, wrestle with this idea and trying to answer this person's question was, well, we need... Like I saw something on LinkedIn just the other day and it said, okay. here are six types of corrosion. It okay. had galvanic corrosion and it had oxidation and it had mm-hmm. UV radiation, you know, types of breakdown of polymer. Mm-hmm. And it had basic, it said corrosion's like the top level one. And then there's all these different kinds of mm-hmm. corrosion. And then right. underneath those mechanisms, then it depends on the material that you're actually on. Copper and steel both have corrosion. One protects itself. And one eats itself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you right, know, keeps right. on going. Right. And silicon but, oxide. Uh, right. But the idea is is to create a a I don't know, glossary, uh listing, uh lexicon is the term I'm using, is saying, well, there's corrosion, well, there's types of corrosion. And here's right. what those types are, and then here's some specifics underneath those things. And what you were leading with is that that came about. I know about all these things because I've run into them over the years and I've right. been fascinated with how things fail for, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's one of those odd things about what we do as reliability people. It's like, right. how does things fail? So I've learned a lot, but it, the idea, and it combines with the site and kind of the idea of this podcast is, well, why can't we create a spot that helps people become aware of the range of way things fail, make them never want to get on an airplane again. And then, <laughs> And so that as you see an issue, you have a better toolkit or awareness of what it could be. And then maybe shorten that time for actually sorting out what happens. But I totally agree with you, Kirk, is that <laughs> that when you're confronted with a problem, you still need to figure out what actually happened. What is the physics, right. chemistry, whatever? What are the details of that? And it will be unique in many, it will many be. cases. And in fact, you, you just listed, you know, just corrosion itself. Yeah. But you, you, you talked about all the compounding factors yeah. that could, could add. And it's usually, it's not just, you know, it's temperature, 
uh, it's moisture, it's, it could be chemical contamination, res- residue left on. There's just, you know, and, and these are combined together and, and cracking. Yeah. Oh, what's the what's the really pretty one? We got to lead off with that. Maybe make that the cover of the book is the uh, dendritic growth. You know where it builds a little tree of beautiful right. colors across right. your circuit board. Not a good luck for your board. No, <laughs> like a tin whisker. It's kind of pretty. It stands up. So, yeah, little spike. Yeah, you know, little spiky little drawing, thing. Spiky little, growing. Yeah. You don't want little silver or tinnish hedgehogs no. across your board. That's not a good thing. Yeah, especially as the densities get tighter and tighter, and that doesn't a gap between <laughs> between um you know traces and line widths is very very small so yeah so those all that changes as the dimensions of the of the chips and and density of the electronics change then the the interactions the mechanisms all start to change too so i think in general like you know you would advise uh, anybody going into reliability one of the basics that they might start studying is material science yep. and um the materials used in especially uh, metals, um, polymers, fatigue, learning, you know, the physics of that, but um, not to really worry. You know, again, I, I, I focus on the fact that most of the problems that uh, engineers in a product development uh, and and launch are going to deal with aren't going to be the problems five five years from then. They're going to be the problems of the of the next uh, production. Well, you know, I usually yeah no, it's the new stuff that engineers don't have right. a lot of experience with. Right. So part of the idea is that here's these different classes of problems. Right. And for example, if you know you're going into an environment that has a really big temperature swing from when it's overnight, like solar, right? It's quiet yeah, overnight, right. it's ambient temperature, and then it heats up. And then once it becomes active, it heats up some more. So it, it gets right. a bigger swing than ambient, and it does it every day. And, and so, it's outdoors. And it's outdoors, and there's all these other factors. But the idea is, is that, so we come up with a new material for right. solar collection and, and protection mm-hmm. of that thing. If that designer isn't paying attention to thermal expansion issues, it's just going to break. It's just going to come apart. So part of the listing and being aware of the types of failures and the stresses that apply to them is to assist in in design, in informing design teams so that you're right. cautious of these things, conscious right. of these things. Right. And most of them intuitively are. They think through vast majority of design teams I've worked with um, – are conscious of it. Now, back to the other thing is that we it, the problems aren't always the ones that you know are new. It's not. When I was at Hewlett Packard, um, we had an issue with ceramic capacitors cracking, mm-hmm. and I went to Dick Moss, who is our, the quality director, and asked him about it. And he goes, "Oh yeah, it happens every five years. It's like clockwork." Mm-hmm. Is our design teams um, forget that they're just little pieces of glass? And I said, why is that? And he says, well, it's a commodity part. They use them all over the place. We use a lot of them. Mm-hmm. And our, we reinf- after each disaster, re- we reinforce in our training and awareness that they're fragile. So be aware of that. But every five years, the new designers right out of school, not familiar with all the ways these components can fail and capacitors are just capacitors and they put them too close to, to screws or they put them on a part of a board that bends or, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. And, and he says, yeah, it's like every five years. And that con- is, 
I found a, uh, oh, I'm drawing a blank on the book, uh, Design Paradigms by Henry Petrosky. He talks mm-hmm. about this phenomena where the first designer with the new material or the new idea over-designs mm-hmm. it. They have a reputation yeah. to protect. They don't want it to fail. They have a lot right. of unknowns, so they bulk yeah. it up, right? Yeah. And they right. do extra. But they teach the next level folks, and some of that cautiousness goes in there, but now we want to make it lighter, cheaper, longer, faster, whatever, right. and we start right. pushing those boundaries. The third generation of engineers working on that novel, new concept, like not the two nanometer stuff we're seeing in circuits now, but you know, the, the old style, I don't know, what was it? 20 nanometer size, you know, I don't know how big they well, were way back when. One micron when I was working at semiconductors. Yeah, there you go. So, but, but the designers of those, they're doing that for exercises in college, you know, and they come to the field and they've never seen these things fail and they push them and use them in different ways that get through some of those boundaries. And that's what's led many different things happen on a cycle like that as we treat it as a commodity and forget that, hey, it's just a piece of glass. It can break, <laughs> you know, kind of thing. So well, we have I, solutions for that. I we mean, do. We, we have, have guidelines and reviews, right, but you have to be right. aware of that stuff. And that's where I think well, this listing idea might be a good idea. Okay. I think that... that I think that those are kind of the CAD systems. All those things need to be part part of the design uh, review, and and of course with the CAD and the automation we have and in a higher level, and which is constantly kind of exponentially developing because mm-hmm. CAD systems build better CAD systems, you know, and that's it's kind of a, well, the it's, yeah, it, on that. But you know, I have a hard time with it. I have a hard time with that approach. If you're not aware of what that button over there does right, no, no, and it no, says right. age this material or, or flex right. it a hundred times and see where the stress concentration right, is. Right, right. If you're not aware that that is a potential piece that you need to take care of, the designer's trying to get the design done and here's this new, this material that we've used forever and they put a radius on it and go, well, that's not yeah. quite enough. Let me change that make it a different yeah. radius. And now right. they break a rule. Yeah. Right. Yeah, you, I don't think we can put all the rules. We can put many in. I think there's keep no. outs and there's, you know, load uh, simulations, all kinds yes. of cool things. There's a lot there. of design rules, right? right? A lot of design rules that we need to be followed. If they're used. Well, they, if they they're should. used. They're not well, always. They're, they're not always <laughs> used. There's trade-offs in all those, yeah. too, on, you know, real estate, solder, you know, how, how, you know, placement, things like that. Okay, so there's always this, in fact, all of engineering is a trade-off, really. Yeah, it is. So, so, you know, looking at this, um, first of all, you know, do you need that chip capacitor? Do you need the, those kind of things, eliminate, reduce as much as you can, but yep. But at the same time, um, even even the best, you know, the chip manufacturer himself, yeah, it's, he's got a whole bunch of, like I talk about in the, the there's a big, huge stack and the guy that's providing the raw materials to the chip, you know, MLCC's mm-hmm. multi-level uh, chip capacitors. Yeah, multi-layer uh, ceramic capacitors, yeah. Yeah, multi-layer ceramic capacitors. Each one of those guys could have a problem in the in the mix of the ceramics and uh, and the and it's a basically a, a, a little ceramic uh, spacer and metal between metal yeah. layers between 
two pieces of ceramic. And so it's, it's a very simple, incredibly simple device. But yeah, at the ends, we have had problems with tombstoning, cracking, uh, things like that. Through oh, the, even and corrosion then, going and across we, it, right. if it's contaminated. And then, yeah. and then we changed from leaded, which we knew a lot about, lead solder, mm -hmm. to a lead-free solder, which we didn't know a lot about. And they were all you know, doing different mixtures of, of, uh, of, uh, silver, uh, what is it? Silver, um, sometimes copper. I think they've added that. And, well, there's sack. It's a uh, sack. Yeah. It's uh, not silver. It's a uh, tin. Um, I want to say, Oh, I'm drawing a blank with the A is, uh, acrimony or something like that, but it's <laughs> probably not the right word. Some metals guy yeah, is going to roll right. over in his grave on me right now. <laughs> and, uh, and, and copper. Yeah. And then Ted Whiskers came about, and we go, uh oh, you know, this a new thing that was an old thing came about again. Well, it was one of those things that was. I remember those days when I was working on it on on the new solder systems, and and yeah. one of the big learning thing we had to go through all of our people on the plants when they switched over from lead to no lead, lead free, was if it's bright and shiny, it's bad now. Whereas the leaded are, if it was bright and shiny, it was good. <laughs> it was kind of a quick visual view. <laughs> right. And it changed all of that. So all these people were, I, I was in a factory and they were touching up all of these joints, which cuts their effectiveness and causes like twice as many problems as, as just leave it alone. Right. Because they weren't bright. And so they were resoldering every joint on this thing. And it, it was like, oh, my God, these things won't last a day. And because yeah. they made a bunch of cold joints and they made a bunch of other stuff. And I'm like, all right, here's the it's a different metal. <laughs> it behaves <Yeah>. different. <laughs> Be aware of this. And it has a different reflow temperature. And that was another problem that yep. the people were using, you know, had to use. They were doing kind of mixed uh, lead Sometimes lead and then then lead free and you know oh, with the just the reflow oh, yeah God, and just... you know that and and I even saw you know we have pictures of of solder not reflowing because they had a one eighty three was the leaded uh, reflow temperature and two. 205 or two sometimes 220 sometimes well over that for the lead free and so you know that led to uh, poor solder joints uh, problems with that so oh, yeah. but there's I mean there's a whole category of the learning curve stuff the stuff that we need that we just don't know we don't know as we use a new material or new process or whatever in where the old process just doesn't work. And then there's a whole category right. of uh, material variation. Like that's the most common right. thing I've seen from vendors is, you know, if I get a material and it's supposed to have this tensile strength, mm -hmm. but if I pick from the bottom right. of the batch, the stuff made on Tuesday, well, that's got like twice the tensile strength and the stuff on the, on the Friday afternoons, like not anywhere close to that tensile strength. And, so it's, or one of the biggest disasters was, you know, the electrolyte mix in an aluminum electrolyted capacitor. Oh, yeah. They just that, forgot they, they a component. Said, well, they forgot a component or they didn't know or they weren't aware of it. And yeah. that, that was a very tough mechanism. You couldn't find it. Well, you, you could find you do it. A chemical analysis. You could find it once you did a chemical analysis. But realizing that uh, the effect of that in the life of the capacitor, because the capacitor still would operate for several months, yeah. not years anymore, right. but so normally under several months. And it was, again, through stress that I could show in an hour, you could blow those things, get them to uh, expand, whereas a normal we capacitor, you could. 
I, I love the when I learned it. It says, what are those little crosshairs on the top of an electrolytic <laughs> capacitor for? And well, that's the vent. And that's for when it goes when it's venting. And as it's venting, you're you're purposely trying to expel some gas. Oh no, it's it's right. not like a relief valve. It's just it's, it's controlling up. which direction it explodes. <laughs> yeah. oh, okay. and, and we saw a few of those. Yeah, yeah. you could actually see where it, it opened up the can. And then there's corrosive of electrolyte all over the place. Uh, right. But that was a problem. That was a, uh, a an error in man, in the design. formulation. Yeah. The well, design, design of that, of that Right. Or in manufacturing. Who knows if somebody left the right, you know, cup of of uh, you know, phosphorus in there or something, whatever. It, it just, it's just, it, and, and, and any, any good design can become a bad design by, by the failure of manufacturing, you oh, know, yeah. failure of, of the process. Like I said, with the reflow of temperature, it didn't have anything to do with the design. It had to do with somebody setting the manufacturing uh, parameters and, and correct machinery settings for that. Yeah. And that happens all the time. So, so those I kind don't, of I, yeah, I don't know that we disagree a whole lot on this. There's, there's so no, much to be aware of. And I think, the idea is the idea of listing it, which caused the start of this conversation. And we just listed like 15 different right. mechanisms in 20 minutes, easy, and talked about them. And part of that in the episode and talking about failure mechanisms, I think you and I agree wholeheartedly in this, Kirk, is to increase the awareness of other people of what we learn, you know, by experience so that they can get ramp up and learn about the next wave of weird stuff that's happening right. and then they can teach us about it um but the idea <laughs> yeah the, the listing is that we haven't seen yet that are going to come into existence we didn't know about oh yeah nobody knew about it's yeah. a whack it's it's always a whack-a-mole kind of thing well, well how many ways can a quantum computer fail <laughs> <laughs> so but the idea is is that there's you know just use we came through a number of examples but i but my my hunch is yes it's a daunting task to create a listing of all mechanisms, but you know, maybe I'll get somebody at Google to work on it because they want to organize <laughs> all of information in the world. Maybe, yeah. I could. but I did I, over the last couple of weeks, I've been doing a lot of searches and really am finding just bits and pieces. Somebody's a specialist at just these mechanisms and they talk about those. And there's another one that lists just broad swaths of stuff, you know, and uh, you know, so it's, I'm trying to, well, I'm still wrestling with the idea. So, anyway. yeah, I, I, no, it's, it, you know, and it still goes against, I mean, it's the challenge there is that, again, we can't and nobody really does publish the actual case histories of a failure mechanism and its manifestation unless they're legally required to do so or it's a court case. Oh, again, oh, we oh, just I found, can't see I that. There's, I, we got to put this in the show notes. There's, there's a, a website I just ran into the other day and uh, yeah. Bob Latino. Um, told me about it. And there's a professor, material scientist um, in Brazil uh -huh. that has created a database and it's got thousands of cases. Now they're all metals because that's what she, her specialty, her area okay. of expertise is, but it's okay. called, it's called material life. And it's, amazing photos of the coolest stuff falling apart <laughs> you know and sem photography i mean it's oh, yeah. really in the details of cracking right. and crazing and stuff like that and and yeah there, there are safeguards that you don't know exactly where this was used or what whose vendor it is and all of that stuff but it goes mm -hmm. into details of like how things go through from being a fine 
retaining pin to heart case harden and crack and cracked and finally fails. Mm-hmm. And it was fat. I just had to rip myself away from it. It's, mm-hmm. it so there are pieces and bits out there, and, yep. but hers site yep. is just in great detail. And you know how material scientists people are. They love taking pictures. Oh yeah. I love it. I love seeing the actual photos and sims yeah. of the mechanisms and, you know, explanation. Now you don't know how that was manifested or how it manifested the failure and things like that. And that's kind of the chain that, uh, yeah. is not, uh, and how they found it, you know, those kind of things. Anyway, go study your failures in your company. That's the way to learn. That's the way to learn. <laughs> Plus we're going to try to help along the way as we can. Okay. All sure. right. Well, thanks Kirk. You bet Fred. Talk again soon. Okay. Talk to you later. Thanks for listening to Speaking of Reliability. We invite you to join the conversation if you have a question or a topic that you think we should discuss in a future show. Please let us know. You can find a comment box below the episode show notes or just leave a note as part of a review on iTunes.